If you caught last week's sermon, um, either in person or online last week, or you listened to it this week, James asked us just a brutally brilliant question, a phenomenal challenge that I really hope you guys have been chewing on all week. James asked, he said, has Jesus become so familiar to us that he no longer means much to us? And I think, I think that's such a danger for the American church and for the, the Christian is that Jesus becomes so familiar and so commonplace that we forget just how magnificent and glorious he is. And it transitions on into what we're going to look at this week as we continue to move through Jesus' life. And we come to kind of our end of time in John's precursor where he talks about Jesus' very first foray into ministry. But we're going to be in John 5 if you want to turn there. Um, and while you do, do we'll, be starting in, we'll be starting in verse right around 10, but some background on the first nine verses of John 5. So there was a place where all the sick people and the, the invalid people and the lame people would gather and congregate because it was a place where healings happened. And so there was a man there. I mean, talk, we're talking about a crowd. We're talking about a multitude of sick people. And Jesus goes there and he singles out one man in this crowd who has been paralyzed for 38 years. And he heals this one man and he tells him, pick up your bed and walk. And so the man naturally picks up his bed and he walks, right? And the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, see him doing this and they confront him about it because it had happened on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had come up with, they say to this man, they say, why are you doing this? Don't you know that it is not lawful to carry anything on the Sabbath, except it wasn't. God said, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, but he didn't go beyond that. So the God's law was to honor the Sabbath. The Pharisees took it upon themselves to, well, we'll fill in the details. We'll, we'll come up with what God didn't. And they came up with a list of 39 different things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. I mean, that's exhausting, right? 39 different, like, does everybody get this checklist to post in there? I mean, seriously, I, I don't know if I could remember 39 different, like, okay, I can do this, but I can't do this. I mean, talk about just legalistic exhaustion. And so that was what this man had done, because one of the 39 things the Pharisees came up with was you couldn't carry your bedroll. And so they say to this man, you broke the law. No, really, he broke your tradition. But in their arrogance, they've equated themselves to the law. And so that's what's going on here as we, as we resume in verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. I mean, this poor guy, right? Like, he's been paralyzed for 38 years. This has got to be the happiest day of his life. Imagine, I mean, think about the happiest day of your life. And if the first thing someone says to you is, Yeah, you're a sinner. You've messed this whole thing up. Like this poor guy. And so he answers him innocently. He's like, well, the man who healed me told me to pick up my bed. Because I have to imagine, I mean, if I put myself in that man's shoes and I've been paralyzed for 38 years and someone comes along and heals me instantaneously, that person is now the ultimate authority in my life. I'm listening to that person over every... So this poor guy has been told, take up your bed. And now someone else comes along and says, no, 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 shame on you. Why are you doing that? But no, the Pharisees aren't concerned with protecting the integrity of the Sabbath. Because if they were concerned with protecting the integrity of the Sabbath, they would go to talk to this guy and they would explain, hey, here's why we think what we do. But what do they do? The moment he says, well, the man who told me to take, who healed me told me to take up my bed and walk, they switch. 
they switch all their ire and they redirect all of their frustration and their anger to this man. Because it wasn't the affront to the Sabbath that bothered the Pharisees. It was that someone dared to, to go against what they said. Someone was daring to question their authority. I mean, listen to what they say to the man. They said, who? Who is this that told you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know it was Je- who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. I love the humility of Christ, right? Jesus wasn't interested in sticking around and being celebrated. He healed the man and then he withdrew. It wasn't about, hey, everybody focus on how awesome I am. It was on healing this man for God. So the guy doesn't know it's Jesus. Jesus withdraws and he tells that to the Pharisee. I don't know who it was. Jesus comes back. He re-meets up with the guy and he tells him, you know, look, don't, don't live in sin. And he talks to the guy a little bit further. So now the guy knows it's Jesus who healed him. So he goes back to the Pharisees in verse 15. The man, who, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered, okay, so they're persecuting Jesus. Note the escalation here. They're mad, they're upset with the guy. Then they're ticked that someone dared question their authority. Now they're persecuting, like we're interested in persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And we get to the crux of the problem, right? He was making himself equal with God. You know what this honestly reminds me of? Uh, who's seen the movie, all right, hands up, like, I think sometimes you guys think I ask questions rhetorically. Who's seen the movie Cool Runnings? Hands, hands up. Jamaican bobsled team, well, I think probably 90s, 2000s, right? Fantastic movie. That's your homework for this week. Watch Cool Runnings. We'll give you some more biblical homework later on, but watch Cool Runnings. And so it's a story about the Jamaican bobsled team, a true story. And if you know anything about Jamaica, it doesn't strike you as the place likely to have a bobsled team. So they have a coach, right? You've got four Jamaican men, and then you have their coach, who was a former Olympic bobsledder, helping them get to the Olympics. And they get to a place where the coach is assigning each of the men their position in the bobsled. And we get to the position of driver, the position of prominence and authority. Like, this is the big, flashy position driver. And the coach starts arguing with one of the guys on the team named Sanka, who thinks he should be the driver. And they go back and forth, and Sanka's insistent, I'm the driver. And the coach is insistent that he's not. And it comes to a head. Sanka finally says, he says, oh, you don't understand. I'm Sanka Coffee. I'm the best pushcart driver in all of Jamaica. I must drive. Do you dig where I'm coming from? And the coach nods. He says, okay. Now dig where I'm coming from. I'm coming from two gold medals. I'm coming from nine world records. I'm coming from 10 years of competition against the best athletes in the world. And Sanka kind of goes, oh. And needless to say, Sanka goes to the back of the bobsled, right? Honestly, that's the visual I get here. You've got the Pharisees, and they're approaching the situation. They're like, whoa, whoa, you don't understand. We're the Pharisees. We're the Jewish leaders. We know the 39 rules. We came up with these 39 rules. We declare what is okay on the Sabbath. Do you dig where we're coming from? And Jesus, in much more professional words, says, okay, now dig where I'm coming from. And Jesus lays out, I am God. 
he presents himself unequivocally as equal with the Lord. And he goes, I mean, when he says, right, the Pharisees, Sanka laid out his resume, and then the coach lays out his resume. The Pharisees have laid out their resume. Jesus knows this is in their hearts and in their minds. Now, Jesus lays out his resume. Listen to this. This is starting in verse, we're going to reread verse 18, or 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's what Landon was declaring to us this morning. That he was dead before Christ and he has heard the words of the Son of God and he now lives in Christ. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus lays out his resume in no uncertain terms. He says, this is where I'm coming from. And that presents us with a very, uh, honestly, the most important decision in our lives. And this is something, I think sometimes Christians are afraid to talk of all the alternatives, right? We're afraid to lay the facts out on the table and look at the facts and make a decision. And the interesting thing is that God's not. And God periodically presents his people with the evidence and says, all right, make a decision. I mean, right, think of Joshua. Choose this day whom you will serve. Joshua acknowledges that there's another choice. Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. In 1 Kings, this is fascinating. In 1 Kings, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. If you're familiar with this story, it's when Elijah, the people of Israel were torn between following God and following this idol, this false god Baal. And Elijah and the prophets of Baal go head to head on the mountaintop. They each set up an altar. They each set up a sacrifice. And they basically, they each pray to their God, God, if you're real, consume this altar with fire. I mean, it's a one-on-one -on -one competition. In 1 Kings 18, 21, it says, how long will you hesitate between opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Elijah wasn't afraid to lay out the evidence and let the evidence speak for itself. Jesus does the same thing here with the crowds and with the people listening. He lays out the evidence. And that leaves us with only a couple of options. We're going to go from Disney to C.S. Lewis. Because, you know, I mean, if you can tie in cool runnings to mere Christianity, that's, that's a good day. C.S. Lewis famously presented it. He wasn't the first. Maybe you've heard of the trilemma. 
liar, lunatic, or Lord. C.S. Lewis wasn't the first one to come up with this concept, but he had maybe the most famous explanation and summarization of it. This is in Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. All right, so C.S. Lewis is trying to prevent the really foolish mistake that people make about Jesus. People say, I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great teacher, human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Do you guys follow that? That we can't, this morning, we're really, I mean, with James's question in mind, has Jesus become so familiar to us that he no longer means much? I want us to really take time and look at who is Jesus? Because we have three options. Like C.S. Lewis laid out, he can't just be a great moral teacher. Because no one who claimed to, to, no one who said what Jesus said would be a good person. If I stood before you and I said, I am God, that would not make me just a good teacher. That would either make me insane if I genuinely thought I was God but wasn't, okay? Or that would make me a liar if I knew I wasn't God but chose to tell people I was anyway and lead them away from the real God. Or if I am neither a lunatic nor a liar, then I would be telling the truth. That's what, that's what C.S. Lewis is saying about Jesus. You can't just write him off as, well, he's a good person, but that's it. No, a good person couldn't claim what he claimed. Jesus is either lying about being God, Jesus is delusional and thinks he's God but isn't, or Jesus is legitimately God. I want to look at the evidence. I'm not afraid to look at the evidence because I believe the evidence speaks for itself. And I believe it's why Jesus presented the evidence in such a concise manner. Jesus laid out five claims of equality with God. In that response that he gave the Pharisees, he gave five different proofs of equality with God. We're going to look at all five of them. Remember, we did this with the prophecies about his birth. We looked at he's going to be from Egypt. He's going to be from Nazareth. He's going to be from Bethlehem. We looked at those prophecies to examine, are these true or not? We're going to do the same thing with Jesus' five evidences here. And with each one of them, ask yourselves, okay, so is he lying when he says that? Is he crazy when he says that? If he's neither lying nor crazy, then he must be telling the truth. The first claim that Jesus gives he says, I am equal with God in person. This is verses 17 and 18. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus claimed equality with God in person, and this isn't a one-time thing. And Jesus wasn't the only one to say this. Matthew 3, 16 through 17, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus 
was equated with God by God the Father. John the Baptist said this, John 1, 32 to 34. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. What's interesting about those two events is that they happen in front of dozens and dozens of witnesses. The baptism of Christ didn't occur in the back corner where no one else could say they saw the heavens open up and the Spirit of God descend and heard the voice of God thunder. This happened in public. So if you want to say that Jesus is lying in these claims or is crazy in these claims, you also have to throw out the eyewitness testimony of everyone who was there and experienced this for themselves. And the Pharisees are in no way, shape, or form ready to throw out God the Father's voice thundering from the heavens. So what are they to do? This isn't just a New Testament thing. Isaiah 44, 6, Isaiah 48, 12, God the Father declares himself to be the first and the last. He gives himself this title, I am the first and the last. In Revelation 1, 8 and in Revelation 1, 17, Jesus gives himself this same title, I am the first and the last. So you have people writing centuries apart, recording the same truth. So just on this first claim of equality with God in person, you have eyewitness testimony that the Pharisees would have accepted. You have historical record. You have writings coming later on. I mean, we're talking about centuries between Isaiah and Revelation being written. So if you want to claim, I mean, let's think about this for a second. Well, no, Sam, this is all a con. This is all a long-term scam. Okay, so people who never would have known each other. I mean, Isaiah and Revelation, the authors of these two, centuries apart, they both were somehow part of the same scam, and they also got everyone who was at the river when Jesus was baptized to join in on this con and lie to everyone and deceive everyone. I mean, if you want to reject this first piece of evidence and throw out the eyewitness testimony, throw out the historical record, honestly, I think you have faith in mo more faith than most Christians if you want to throw that out. And we're just on the first claim of equality with God. We haven't even gotten to the other four yet. The next one, and I think they only get bigger and more impressive from here. Jesus claims equality with God in person and provides the evidence. Then Jesus claims equality with God in work, verses 19 through 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. Jesus tells the people, God and I are equal in what we do. Well, again, does this occur anywhere else in Scripture? John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, talking about Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. Listen to this about Jesus' work from the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. 
God created the world through Jesus. They are equal in work. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.16 describes Jesus creating the world. Genesis 1.1 describes God creating the world. The Bible unanimously presents Jesus and God as being equal in work, just as Jesus claimed. The third claim that Jesus lays out is in power and sovereignty over life. This is verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. That's a pretty bold claim. As the Father has sovereignty and power over life and death, so do I. That's a pretty easy one to refute. And we're going to be looking at evidence that hasn't happened yet for these people. Which I think sometimes, and I, I even say this, right? Sometimes I'm like, man, if I could have only lived back then. Like, if I could have only heard Paul speak. If I could have only read the letter that they wrote to Ephesians. and like, If I could have lived back then, that would have been so great. I have to imagine that there's a part of them that would have said, are you kidding me? You guys got to live in a time when you have the completed revelation of God. You have the testimony in one cohesive piece. That's incredible. So when we look at this idea of, okay, is Jesus really equal to God in sovereignty and power of life over death? Well, first, does God have this power and sovereignty? 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 4, 2 Kings 5. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God demonstrated as having power over life and death. As we continue to study Jesus' ministry, we will come to multiple instances where Jesus demonstrates this exact same power over life and death. John 11, John 14, John 20 all record Jesus having power over life and death. And again, just like with the baptism, these are events with numerous witnesses. These are events that the Pharisees cannot throw out as being unsubstantiated. So Jesus is giving claims that the evidence will uphold. Then you have a big one. Jesus claims, he's claimed, I'm equal to God in person. I am equal to God in work. I am equal to God in power and sovereignty over life. I am equal to God in judgment, he says. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. This is hard for the Pharisees to accept because they've been opposing Jesus. Listen to Mark 2, 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and he being Jesus. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven." Now some of the scribes and leaders were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? I love what Jesus says. I mean, just in case they want to try and keep an excuse, Jesus dismisses it. Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, 
I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus claims, I am equal with God in judgment. Very shortly, he's going to demonstrate this to the people, to their face. We have the added benefit of the entire testimony of Scripture to look at as we consider the evidence. Romans 14.10 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. God gets the judgment seat. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat belongs to Christ. Jesus claims equality with God in judgment. Scripture provides one cohesive testimony to exactly this fact. And then finally, and I think this is just my personal opinion, I think this would have been the hardest one for the Pharisees to wrap their minds around. The people questioning Jesus, who he has just laid out. This is where I'm coming from. Do you understand it? Jesus claims equality with God in honor. This is verse 23 that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Who d whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I mean, that's a gut punch to these Jewish leaders. No, no, no. That all may honor the Son. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. See, the Pharisees came to Jesus saying, you're blaspheming, and Jesus said, no, you are. The Pharisees are saying, you're blaspheming God. You're taking honor that is due God. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you are. I have to imagine this was the one that made them the most just ticked off. All right, so let's look at the evidence. Is Jesus equal with God in the honor due him? Daniel 7, 13 to 14, again, let's go centuries back. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All peoples, nations, and kingdoms should serve him, should give him the honor due him. Revelation 5.13, there's a reason we did Revelation 5 this morning, because we wanted to do the whole chapter so that you could see the lamb and the one on the judgment seat were two separate, distinct individuals. Revelation 5.13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, everyone, everyone saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The Bible presents one cohesive evidence that Jesus and God are equal in honor. I mean, to use a modern term, Jesus dropped the, mics on the, or dropped the mic on the Pharisees and just walked away. Except he didn't walk away. He stuck around to continue to witness to the people. But how are you going to come back against that? The Pharisees are saying, whoa, whoa, you blasphemer? And Jesus says, no. All right, enough. This is who I am. I am God. I am God. I am equal to God in person. I am equal to God in work. I am equal to God in power and in sovereignty. I am equal to God in judgment. I am equal to God in honor. That's where I'm coming from. 
so at the start, you know, I mentioned, and C.S. Lewis really said it far better, if Jesus is a liar, then we dismiss him. And really, we condemn him. I mean, if, if, if someone would come along and lie about this and lead people away from the real God, he deserves to be condemned. If someone would come along and claim this, but he wasn't, but he thought he was, then he deserves to be pitied. So if Jesus is a liar, condemn him. If Jesus is insane and delusional, then pity him. Personally, I'm fine with presenting the evidence as Jesus did. Because I think the evidence very clearly eliminates those first two options. I, I don't see how you could claim that Jesus is lying. When you have historical record and testimony separated by centuries all confirming his claims, when you have dozens and dozens and dozens of eyewitnesses confirming his claims, when you have the physical acts of healing, I mean, Jesus has power over sovereignty and life. Is someone going to claim, hey, that guy who was paralyzed for 38 years, that's a fake? I think the evidence supports Jesus' claims. So I don't see how you could say he's lying. I don't see how you could say he's crazy. So if Jesus is neither lying nor crazy, I believe the evidence makes it clear that we are left with one option. Jesus was and is and always will be Lord. And if Jesus is Lord at all, then Jesus is Lord of all. And that means we are left with two options. Just like back in 1 Kings, stop wavering between two opinions. If Yahweh is God, then follow him. If not, then don't. It's that simple. If Jesus is Lord, and I believe with all my heart that the evidence, the historical, the manuscript, the testimonial evidence demonstrates that Jesus is Lord, then follow him or don't. You can't write him off as just a good person. We can't dismiss him as a liar. We can't dismiss him as a lunatic. So I'm either willing to accept, okay, this is the Lord, or this is the Lord, but I just can't accept that. And I want to, I mean, some of my best friends have been in places like this over the years. One of my best friends is still in a place. I just talked to him a week ago, and he's still in a place of, I don't know, I'm just, I'm not ready. I can't argue, this is, this is how he phrased it the one time, he, he and I were talking. And he said, I can't, I, I have no argument against anything that is presented. I said, okay, then let's keep talking about it. So here's, here's what I would like to ask you to do. If you're here this morning, and, I, and please know, I say none of this with condemnation. I say none of this with scorn or dismissal. If you're here this morning and you cannot bring yourself to accept that Jesus is Lord, and I'm not talking about accept him as your personal savior. I'm talking about if you cannot bring yourself to wrap your mind around Jesus is Lord, ask yourself why not. Please, please honestly ask yourself, what is it that is just a holdup for me? Is it the presence of sin in this world? Is it the presence of pain and of suffering? Ask yourself, I mean, really, I want to have a conversation with you, and I mean that. So, please, so earnestly, if you're online, I want to have a conversation with you. If there's something that you just can't bring yourself to say Jesus is Lord, I, I want to know what that is. I want to talk about it with you. I want to look at it because I believe the evidence 
in every way, shape, and form will point to Jesus as Lord. And if you're here this morning and you have accepted Jesus as Lord and you have professed Jesus to be Lord, then what you have said is that Jesus is Lord over all. I mean, again, this is not a rhetorical question. Is Jesus Lord of Sunday? Is Jesus Lord of the Sabbath? Not a rhetorical question. We'll try it another time. Is Jesus Lord of the Sabbath? Yes. Is Jesus Lord of Monday through Saturday? Is Jesus Lord of this country when we are not in a health... I'm not even going to describe it because half of you will accuse me of not taking it seriously enough and half of you will accuse me of taking it too seriously. Is Jesus Lord when this country is not experiencing anything related to health? Is Jesus Lord right now when we are? Is Jesus Lord of our church service when we can all sit on one seat stacked up together as close as you can physically get? Is Jesus Lord of our church service when we're wearing masks and separated by six feet? If Jesus is Lord at all, Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of your social media posts. Jesus is Lord of your conversations with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with your family members. Jesus is Lord of the conversations you have with your spouse at home. Okay, well, I won't say anything terrible about anyone in public, but man, once I get behind closed doors, then you'll see the real me. Yeah, Jesus is Lord over that conversation around the dinner table too. Jesus is Lord, well, you know what? I won't even tell my wife, but I'm going to think it. No, Jesus is Lord over those thoughts too. So if you're here and you have accepted Jesus as Lord, you've accepted, okay, Jesus is Lord. I profess this to be true. Then I want you to ask yourself, and again, I want you to ask yourself honestly, does my life bear evidence to this? If you look at how I live day to day, is it clear that my life is defined by the truth that Jesus is Lord of all? Is that present itself in the way I talk, the way I behave, the way I interact with people? The way I interact with people I disagree with. The way I interact with people I think are idiots. The way I interact with people who I disagree with every single thing they say. Does your relationship and engagement with them reflect the truth that Jesus is Lord? Jesus laid it out as plainly as you can. I have loved looking at the evidence. I am someone who I like questions. I like digging deep into things. So I have loved looking at the manuscript evidence and looking at the testimony and the eyewitness and the historical verification. I mean, you realize that we have ample historical evidence from people who don't claim to believe in God at all verifying, yeah, this is a historically sound document. This is a reliable document. I may not believe what's in it, but I'm not going to pretend like it's made up. I, I have enjoyed diving into this so much. And so I want to challenge you guys, never be afraid to do the same. Never be afraid to lay out the evidence. But when the evidence brings you to an inescapable conclusion, as I believe this does, I believe the evidence of this brings us to an inescapable conclusion that Jesus is Lord of all, then I have to ask myself, am I willing to adjust my life in whatever way is necessary in light of that evidence? And if not, why not? I want to talk to you about those things. But please, if you're here this morning, I'll especially extend this. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as Lord and you're not quite willing to say He is, just, just grab me. I'm going to go stand by the doors. I mean, seriously, I'll take you to lunch. Free lunch. We'll talk about this. Oh, shoot, no. I've got lunch plans. 
I'll take you to dinner. We'll do dinner. We'll do dinner and we'll talk about Jesus as Lord because I'm convinced with everything in me that it is the single greatest thing in this world to know him as such. And I want you to, too. So as Matt prepares to come and lead us in a final song, one, think about these words as we sing them. Ask yourself if these words ring true about your life. And two, before we do so, please join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the evidence. I thank you that it requires faith, and I thank you that you have given us free will. I really do. I thank you that you have given us free will, but I thank you for the evidence. I thank you for what you have laid out from the beginning of time to demonstrate the truth of who you are to us. And so, Lord, I ask that this truth would shape and define our lives. That we would look at Jesus' claims, we would look at the support for them. And God, I, I pray that those who can't accept you as Lord, that whatever that final obstacle is in their heart, that you would tear it down so that they can know the joy of knowing you as Lord. And for those of us who have professed Jesus to be Lord, God, remind us of this every waking moment of our lives that you are Lord of everything and deserve to be worshipped as such. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please stand.